Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Joel Zimberg. Joel is a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute and an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. He was a senior economist and general counsel at the White House Council on, of Economic Advisors uh, from 2017 to 2019, and he's been writing regularly for City Journal throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. His latest article, Following the Politics, Not the Science, discusses the lab leak theory of the virus's origins, which has been a hot topic of late. So, Joel, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, you know, before we get to that hot topic, the pandemic's origins, um, I think it makes sense just to uh, start with a general discussion of where we are in the pandemic in the U.S. I think the last time we had you on 10 Blocks was in January. Things seem very different now. Uh, the vaccination effort in the U.S., I, I think most people would say, has been a big success, with more than half of all Americans now having received at least one dose. The cases and deaths are way down. Um, you know, there's some concern still with variants of the virus. But so far, anyway, the vaccination drive seems to have uh, been kept ahead of the spread of new, new variants. So where do you think we are with the pandemic? Is that too rosy a view uh, that I'm uh, picturing or, or, or not? And, uh, you know, what's your view of what the next months will look like? I don't think it's too rosy of you at all. And in fact, uh, you may recall, I wrote an article for City Journal back at the beginning of April, uh, suggesting that between vaccine immunity, in other words, the people who've gained it through vaccination, and natural immunity, people who've become immune through getting COVID-19 and then recovering, we might be approaching herd immunity. And what we've seen since that time, since uh, early and mid-April, is that cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have steadily declined. So I think we were already uh, approaching it at that point, and we're in an even better position now. Uh, You you refer to the total numbers of uh, people as a percentage of the population vaccinated. But I think it's more important to look at adults Uh, meaning 18 or older, Uh, and there you have more than 50% are fully vaccinated, and almost two-thirds have gotten at least one dose, which is pretty close to as effective as getting fully vaccinated. Uh, So that's the real population that's at risk, because people 17 and younger have really a very minimal risk from COVID-19. They form 0.1% of all deaths of COVID are in that 17 and younger population. So we've got the the population that's most vulnerable to COVID has gotten pretty well vaccinated. And in fact, if you look at the people who are far and away the most vulnerable, the people 65 and older, who form 81% of all COVID deaths, there you have uh, more than three quarters are fully vaccinated and 86% have gotten at least one dose. So we're really well on our way to one full herd immunity, uh, which is probably meaning 70 to 75 percent of the population has immunity. And we've done a good job protecting those folks who are most vulnerable. So even for the 
remaining people who are unvaccinated, most of them are in a very low risk group. Well, it's very encouraging to see for sure the vaccine rollout elsewhere globally has obviously not been quite as successful. Uh, the UK and Israel are, are in good shape, but, but other countries are not. India has uh, of late had a terrible uh, rise in um, cases and deaths, although I, I think that has uh, leveled off somewhat now and is declining. Uh, and, but other countries are struggling as well. You know, they just don't have enough vaccine doses or because the vaccines that they are uh, relying on aren't, aren't as effective as um, the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines or the Johnson & Johnson used in the U.S. The Biden administration recently uh, did announce that it's going to send uh, vaccine doses abroad, and that's obviously something that will be helpful. But it also recently signaled support to waive intellectual property protections for vaccine technology. So I'm wondering, you know, what your view of that IP waiver uh, is and whether that's likely really to accelerate uh, the vaccination of the globe or, or is it more likely to endanger biomedical innovation, which, which other critics are, are saying it will, will do? I think it's the latter, uh, that it's going to... Uh, endanger the innovation that really in an unprecedented manner brought us three approved vaccines within the space of about a year after this new disease was first described and the new virus uncovered. Uh, that has just never happened. It usually takes many years and tens of billions of dollars to develop new vaccines. And now we're in a situation where uh, you have this incredible achievement. And giving away that intellectual property is going to discourage any manufacturer going forward from making that kind of investment and commitment. Moreover, you have a situation where this is not an easy vaccine, particularly the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and from Moderna. These are not easy vaccines to manufacture. Just giving someone the intellectual property doesn't mean they can set up the specialized uh, manufacturing facilities to make it. Uh, so this isn't really not the way to go. The way to go is to take our excess vaccines. So for example, we have millions of doses of AstraZeneca vaccine. We're not still not approved in this country and we can give those away to other countries. We can give away Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of the unfortunate pause uh, uh, that the Biden uh, FDA and CDC undertook, uh, I think has undermined confidence to some extent in that Johnson Johnson vaccine, but it's highly effective, it's safe, uh, and it's actually perfect for developing countries because it only needs a single dose rather than the two-dose regimen that you have for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. So the way to go is to uh, to give the excess surplus vaccines away, and if necessary, buy vaccines here, uh, because these are not expensive vaccines. They are, these are life-saving drugs. They're first in their class, the mRNA vaccines, yet they're selling for about $30 uh, 
for the vaccination. So that's a that's a really pretty cheap price. And and you know rather than cripple the U.S. industry, uh, maybe take some of the some money and with a small investment and and help folks overseas with it. How do you see the pandemic unfolding around the world in the you know near to medium term? What's the rest of the year look like to you in that in that situation? A lot is going to depend on what happens with variants. Thank goodness that t- to date uh, the variants all seem to be susceptible to the vaccines that are available. That may not always be the case, and you may get new variants, but uh, as long as the um, these vaccines remain effective against the circulating viruses, we will eventually reach herd immunity worldwide. And that, as I said, to, we have to reiterate, that is a combination of vaccine immunity and natural immunity from people who recover from COVID. Uh, you know, one thing that has become clear, uh, and which I think many of our media colleagues were not terribly clear on over the past year, is that COVID-19, as bad as it is, does not have a fatality rate, an infection fatality rate, that is, you know, anything on a par with something like Ebola or even the first SARS. You know, the first SARS-1, which was from about uh, 17 years ago, there you had a 10% fatality rate if you got infected. Ebola, you have about a 50% fatality rate. In the case of COVID-19, your fatality rate is is probably, you know, it's less than 1%. It's probably on the order of 2 to uh, 0.2 to 0.3% all told, uh, which is, you know, more than influenza, but it's maybe twice as much more than influenza. It's not that terrible. So from for young, healthy people, this uh, where the fatality rate's probably even lower than that, this is, you know, not a disease that most of them are going to have to worry about. So, you know, hopefully we'll see the evolution of this take place over the next several months where more vaccines get sent overseas uh, and people recover from uh, the disease and we attain herd immunity worldwide. On to this uh, lab leak theory the possibility that the pandemic was born from research that was being conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There's been, um, you know, a flood of information in recent weeks. Scientists are now calling for further investigation into the theory. And the media, which had written the theory off as a conspiracy story in the pandemic's early stages, is now acknowledging that it's at least a real possibility. So could you just discuss the lab leak theory a bit? How would the virus have escaped, practically speaking, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? What kind of research was being performed there? So there are basically two outstanding theories about the origins of COVID-19. The first theory is that as has happened with other coronaviruses like the original SARS and MERS, that there was an animal intermediary and that this was a natural jump from a reservoir of of coronavirus in bats through another animal and into humans. Uh, 
The second theory is that this was a virus that was in the Wuhan laboratory, either because it was found elsewhere uh, and was brought into the laboratory to study, or it was found elsewhere, brought into the laboratory to study, and was manipulated while it was there through what's known as gain-of-function research, where uh, the virus is altered to make it more infectious uh, to human beings. Uh, but that, in any event, it, whether it was altered or not, that it was escaped from the laboratory, probably by accident, and probably via infecting lab personnel, who then went out into the community and infected other people. And that's why the uh, revelation in the, uh, from some Wall Street Journal reporters that there were three lab workers from that laboratory who were hospitalized in November of 2019, which is the month prior to the first reported case in Wuhan in December of 2019, is so important. It would provide an explanation as to how it got out of the laboratory and into the community. And I would add that that Wall Street Journal report echoed a January 15th State Department fact sheet that said that they had information that uh, some of the lab workers had gotten sick with COVID-like symptoms. So no one knows 100% if those people were infected uh, and had COVID back in November, but it's certainly highly suggestive, particularly when you consider that Wuhan in China is the home of their foremost virology institute, which is known for conducting coronavirus research. It's known that they, they send out researchers throughout China hundreds of miles away to collect bats and to collect the viruses from the bats to study. And it's also known that they engage in gain-of-function research. So all of those factors, the geography and the uh, now apparent cases back in November, start to suggest quite strongly that there may have been a lab leak. This isn't uh, one of the uh, great moments in media history, the way the pandemic was covered last year, this kind of discussion was viewed as, as, as I just noted, a kind of conspiracy theory. Um, you know, public health authorities, together with most mainstream outlets in the press, manufactured a scientific consensus about the pandemic's origins. And then they labeled dissent from that, um, you know, verboten. Eventually, this has become untenable. We are all debating this now. Uh, but this process played itself out in, uh, in other areas during the pandemic as well, this kind of censoring of what can be legitimately discussed. Are you optimistic at all that this latest uh, shift um, will you know, prompt at last a kind of reconsideration on the part of the press of, of what their priorities have been in covering the these public health issues? Or is that just wishful thinking? Well, <laughs> I, I hope you are correct that this will, will uh, make the press a bit more curious about what's going on because they were remarkably incurious throughout this last year and a half as to what was going on. I mean, there were lots of indications early on in the scientific community 
through published work from Chinese scientists, from American scientists. There was a group of uh, French scientists from Marseille that published uh, about certain features of this new virus that made it look like it might be engineered. Uh, and unfortunately, what happened was, uh, even though some of we now know from some of these uh, leaked, well, they're not leaked anymore, they were released emails from uh, uh, Anthony Fauci and his various correspondents, that some of these scientists early on were suggesting, gee, there are features of this virus that make it look like it might be engineered. And I, I can go into those if you'd like, but um, putting that aside, some of those same scientists then came out in some very highly publicized articles and said, no, this is not a lab leak. This is a natural origin. And it was a very peculiar thing now in retrospect why they were doing that. But they provided cover for the journalists who wanted to downplay the possibility of a lab leak. And I think one need only look at who was suggesting that we look into a lab leak, and that was uh, President Trump, and it was conservatives like Senator Cotton, to understand that the a good part of the media rationale was that if, if these folks say it, then it must be crazy, and it must be wrong, and we have to uh, nip it in the bud. And that's exactly what happened. And, and unfortunately, the scientists provided cover for that. Um, so hopefully that's going to change, but I don't know. I've seen, you know, there was a New York Times reporter recently who said, who tweeted, uh, we should stop talking about a lab leak hypothesis because that's racist. Uh, and there's still folks who are suggesting that, no, no, this lab leak stuff, that's just Trump. Don't, don't believe it. So, you know, I hope you're cor correct that this is going to change, but time will tell. The final question for today, Joel, would be about um, what the implications are for the evolution of the virus if it if it was manipulated, if it was something that was in part uh, created in a lab. Does that, I, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this, but I haven't really read anything saying, well, this might mean it will mutate in more aggressive ways or... or it might fall apart um, after a time because it's not completely um, born in nature. Uh, I wonder if you've got any thoughts about that. That's very hard to know in, um, uh, what will happen over time, but that's part of the evidence that suggests that this might, in fact, be a lab leak. Um, because what was seen in earlier uh, coronavirus pandemics was that you had a virus, it came out from a natural source, and over time you could trace the evolution of that virus and see how it became, uh, how it mutated or changed so that it became more infective uh, to human beings, more transmissible. With this virus, for the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19, when it first comes out, it appears to be a highly efficient infector of, of human beings, and it has a 12-letter uh, or nucleic acid, really, is, is the correct term, insertion in the middle of it that makes it a very highly effective infector of human cells. And that's a, that is that 12-letter uh, 
uh, piece, that segment, includes a central six-letter segment that includes two uh, segments, th two triplets, really, of, uh, of nucleic acids that are almost never found in coronaviruses. So it's highly suggestive that something was done to these viruses. Uh, they came out being very infectious to humans. We haven't seen tremendous evolution of those viruses, even though we're on a year from the original you know, description of the viruses. So it, it's, it's hard to know, but hopefully this thing came out highly infectious and it's not going to get any worse. Well, that's, that's very, very illuminating, Joel. Thanks, as always, for coming on 10 Blocks. Don't forget to check out Joel's work on the City Journal website www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. He's been writing, as I noted at the at the top, um, uh, extensively on the pandemic, every aspect of it uh, over the last year and a half for us. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Joel, thanks again. You're very well. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.